0: How many churches do that? How many times do we do that? So we are to look to our past. Scripture is clear about that. Look to your past, but not at your past. There's a big difference there. We're going to look at Judges. So if you have a Bible, go to Judges. Uh, If you're using the house Bibles, it's 181. It's Judges chapter 2. And this really lines it up nicely for us. To, To recap where we are in Judges, it's the seventh book in the Bible if you're looking for it. And what happened is God chose a people, and that was going to be His people the people he was going to work through. And those people ended up being slaves in Egypt, and then God decided, I'm going to free them now. It's time to free them. He, he broke them from their enslavement, and then they were escaping, and he parted the Red Sea for them. And they were hungry in the desert, and he sprinkled manna on them, and they were thirsty, and he made water shoot out of rocks and other strange places, and he just kind of took care of them. He gave them laws. He gave them this book to live by so that they would um, prosper and so that they would know him. And so that's where we are in Judges. They're 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 paving the way towards a promised land. And so God leads them all this way and finally gets them to the promised land. They're looking in and they say, Well, the people are giants, we can't go in. And so then they wander around a little bit more, and finally some leaders say, Hey, we can get in there, we can do this. And under the the lead of Joshua, they go in, they conquer the land, and they they have all these military victories, some of them are strange. You know, like walking around a city, and some of them are odd the way they get their victories, but they finally have victory, and they're in the promised land. God's people in the land that was designed for them, and that's where Judges picks up. It's kind of giving us a recap. What's been going on? And in chapter 2, verse 6, it says, When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. So the whole time they are in the wilderness, they were bartering for land. They're trying to find out where to go, where it would be a good spot to be. God had given them certain inheritance based on their tribe. All this was worked out, and so they're tired of living in tents until Joshua said, you want the oceanfront property? Go take it. You want to be landlocked? Go take it. You want to live in the valley? Go take it. They're all spreading out now. Verse 7, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, so they had a good pastor, a good church planner, a good leader, and so they followed God. And all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. So some old people were around Joshua who had seen what God had done, and they also held true to it. Who had seen all the great work of the Lord which He had done for Israel. Alright, so everything's going well. This would be a great point to put a verse in that says they lived happily ever after, but they didn't. We get the verse 8. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, not Nun, N-O-N-E, if you don't have your Bible. Um, Joshua, the son of Nun, died. All right, so this is a bad deal. The servant of the Lord died at the age of 110. Still were okay. They lost their pastor. They lost their visionary. They could still be okay. They buried him. And then verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their father. So then all the old people who were with Joshua died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. It's a sad verse. Okay, you might not get how sad that verse is, but it's a sad verse after all they'd been through just to dismiss it at this point. Then verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. They bowed themselves down to them and made God angry. All right? So this is what happened. Joshua gets buried and in the tomb with Joshua goes the legacy of God. The Red Sea, well, let's put that in there with him. The manna, that needs to go in with him. Everything Joshua had lived for, the legacy of God, got buried along with him. And it's a sad deal. And I love that he died when he was 110 years old. Okay, and I, I wish he was still alive. It would be cool to talk to Joshua. But the fact that he died when 110 is such a great number for us. I've been at this church for 27 years, and some people look at me and say, hey, he'll be here forever. And there's other people, like some of our gray-haired folks who are sitting around, they're like, oh, she's been here since 1968, she's been here for 54 years, they've been here, they met in the college group, you know, there's all these stories about people who have been here for so long, 110 is a great number, because in 110 years, none of you will be here. Not one person will be sitting in these pews, we don't know if these pews will be here. But it's assured, even someone holding a baby right now, 110, that baby won't be here. So if our legacy is based on location, we're in the wrong. We're in trouble. Because in 110 years, your location will change. You're not going to be sitting in these pews in 110 years. What about money? If your legacy is based on money, you know, you're stockpiling money, you're Scrooge McDucking it, you got a vault, it's great, you know. In 110 years, that money won't be yours. It'll be your grandkids' money. the bank's money or the government's money it will not be your money your job if i could just get promoted if i could be assistant to the regional manager if i could just get that big promotion that's what i'm striving for It's what i'm striving for i guarantee in 110 years none of us will be gainfully employed prerequisite every job criteria living unless you're going for a haunted house then maybe i don't know but we're not going to have jobs so if your legacy is based on how well you do at your job, you're in trouble. We heard some stuff about family. That's a hard one. Is the Bible clear about family? Yes. Train up the child in the way he should go. That's, we're supposed to be involved in family. We're supposed to use that as a structure. God uses that as some way to understand how he and his son operate. Jesus, he gave us that format because we could understand it. So families is important. But if your legacy is tied up in family and that's first... 110 years, guess what? You're not going to be a part of that family. In 50 years, you're probably not going to be a part of the family. The family's not going to look like it looks today. So if that's what we're tied up in, and that's what our personal legacy is all about, we're going to be just like these Israelites. They get there, they get their land, they bury their guy, and then it's all about land, it's all about money, it's all about location, it's all about family, and you begin serving the gods of the people around you. Because the legacy of God lasts, the legacy of man doesn't last. And that's what happens here. And the legacy of the church operates the same way. If you look at the figures, this is a low count, but thousands of churches in the United States close every year. Thousands. They don't have enough people, they don't have the right pastor, they don't have the right leadership, they don't have enough money. Close. But sadder still than that is the thousands that stay open and willingly abandon the legacy of God and worship the bales of the people around them. Do you see this in churches today? We're going to go through some of these. And, and maybe we'll be patting ourselves on the back. And maybe we won't be. We'll see where we land. But the bales of the people. What are the bales of the people in America? What are the bales of the people in the churches? Do they exist? Okay, we're supposed to serve L-O-R-D. The Lord. Four letter word. We have replaced it with a different four letter word that comes from society. S-E-L-F. The God of self is prevalent in churches today. One way we see this is the American dream. How many churches are based on the American dream? What was that? Is that me? We good? All right. The American dream just crumbled upstairs. I don't know. But the American dream, you think of how it looks. prosperity. is on mute does that make a difference (laughs) is that what that means all right do we need a recap are we good you guys could have said something earlier my goodness we're like 12 minutes in and everyone's like oh just being nice don't be polite to me i haven't earned it let's just get rid of this one all right thanks james stand-up guy and now we're rolling All right, don't pay attention to this. All right, American Dream, that's where we are, all right? American Dream. We see this in churches. It's all about pray hard enough, you get rich. It's all about money. That's where the legacy is. It's all about getting yours. You watch X Factor, you watch uh, American Idol. Love those shows. I think they're fun. But every interview, if you watch it, of the people who make it are just soaked in what? I dreamed this. I wanted it worse than anyone else. I wanted it so bad, and look, I got it. You can too. What do we tell our kids? I remember in my first algebra classroom, there were posters all over the wall, and they all said, shoot for the moon, you land among the stars. Let no one get in your way. Don't let anyone get in the way of your dream. Go get yours. Someone gets your way, trample over them. Sad part is, it's a lie. Okay? And I got nothing against you know trying to do good at your job and trying to succeed. I think God wants successful people to be following him, but You know, I could take 10 years and quit my job and abandon my family and abandon my responsibility and do vocal lessons every day, eight hours a day, and just pour myself into it and dream it and want it. Who doesn't want to be famous? Who doesn't want to be rich? And at my audition for X Factor, they'd laugh me off the stage because I can't carry a tune. It's not true. It's just what we want to hear. And churches are doing it. It's all about prosperity. We need to wake up from the American dream and live in the waking reality of God and the church. And we see this with money. A lot of churches are doing really well. They're not doing any kingdom legacy stuff, but they're making money. They're building mansions. And building stuff's great. God can work through building stuff. That's a beautiful thing. But from getting rich, I mean, that's that's not the way it operates. Because if you look at this book, if you've read this book called the Bible, it's like the best-selling book ever. But what does it do? It sits on coffee tables. It's not best-selling because people read it. It's best-selling because it's big enough. Of Mice and Men isn't a good paperweight, so you've got to get the Bible. It's bigger. Sit down on your coffee table. What do they do at hotels? Every hotel's got a Bible. They stuff it in the drawer. Because if you walked into your room and that was opened up to an offensive chapter, no one's staying at your Holiday Inn anymore. Tuck that thing away. The thing about this is it's radical, and it's offensive, and it doesn't sell. You have, is any of you guys study marketing? Marketing students right this is not a book you can market what does this book do throughout it says there are two groups of people so instantly it's not inclusive there's two groups of people you got the righteous and you have the unrighteous all right and it says the righteous is a small group few find the narrow gate it's a narrow path not many are on this path and so you don't want to sell to those people there's only like eight of them we're going to sell to the big masses and what does it say about the masses it says you're evil you're wicked you're unruly you're destined for hell. They're not going to sign up for that newsletter. They don't want any part of that. And so then you turn to the righteous and you try and sell it to the righteous. Okay, I'm looking at you, righteous people. And what does the Bible say about the righteous people? It says, your heart is deceitful above all else. You're wicked. You're unruly. Apart from Christ, you're nothing. It's only by God's grace. It's not you, it is God. And people don't want to hear that either. And so my question is how are churches getting rich off this? There's no market can't be making money off this. I was at a a chapel like a month ago, and I spoke at a chapel. There's about 500 students there. Afterwards, people shaking my hand, saying, good job, good job. A lot of affirmation. I felt really great. I went in the gym about two hours later, and two guys were waiting for me. They sat me down, and they just ripped me up. So they didn't like what I said. They said I was pitting religions against each other, that I was saying God's the only way, and that they have friends who are better than any Christians they know, so how can I say that? And just really let me have it and when you pour your heart into something and then you hear all this negative feedback it was kind of hurtful and so I talked with them we dialogued I remember leaving and as I walked out the door I realized that was my most affirming moment because if you preach the truth of this if you talk about this and it's full counsel and you don't offend somebody you're not holding true to the message it's offensive it's radical it's radical We also see this self in our churches because it's dripped down from society. I'll give an example. I'm going to get married, hopefully, um, in like 82 days, actually. Um, I'm going to go get married. And I was walking with my fiancé at Walmart this week. And it was about 9.30 at night. We were walking. And a guy comes up from behind me, this old man. It was so funny. He says, that's a smart guy I see in front of me. I said, me? (laughs) I've never been called smart in public, so I wanted him to say it again. And I said, uh, why is that? He said, because you found a lady you like, and you're holding on to her. And I said, well, I must be real smart, because I put a ring on her finger. And he starts laughing and gets in his truck, and I thought I dropped a great joke. I'm laughing. We're good friends. All right. And I, I take my fiance. I let her in the car, and she gets in the car. And then I walk around the front of the car, and the guy had pulled his truck and was blocking our car in. And he goes, hey, come here a second. And I was like, oh, good. He's a murderer. <laughs> That's really what I thought. I didn't want to look weak in front of her because this was an old man, but I was like, this is not good. I don't know what's going to happen. So like, delicately approach his truck, like getting ready to run, or I don't know where we would have gone. We were pinned in at that point. He said, son, and he called me son, which I was pleased with. He said, son, let me tell you two things. I said, okay. He said, first, what did he say first? <laughs> I got to get this right. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I want to get it right, because the second one's the, the kicker. But he said, first, uh, I want to give you all the marital advice you're ever going to need. I said, well, this is good. I just came to Walmart for some milk. All right, marital advice. <laughs> and he said, uh, two words, all you need to know. Don't listen to anyone who says this is all you need to know. He goes, yes, dear. And I was like, all right, that's good. I'll take that. And then he said, uh, now, second, I want to give you a riddle. I said, a riddle? <laughs> what are you, a wizard? <laughs> who tells riddles nowadays? like, if I get it right, do I get a special power? Like, who is this guy? And uh, he goes, here's the riddle. And I said, okay, give it to me. He said, what's the difference between a wife and a girlfriend? I look him dead in the eye, and I was thinking, man, that's a tough question. I look at society. You guys know what's going on. You know, celebrities are getting divorced after 70 days, and divorce rate is like the highest it's ever been. And A lot of that is because people in my generation don't look at marriage as the sanctity that God set up. They don't look at it as that Christ to the church relationship. People don't understand marriage. And I wanted to look at this guy, and in that moment, I wanted to show him I was different from my generation. I wanted to show him that I valued this, that I was getting married forever. And so that was my answer. I looked him square in the eye or circular in the eye because his eyes were round. But I looked at him, and I said, the difference is forever. I puffed my chest out, and I thought I gave this great answer, and that he was going to be like, you're right, son. And we're, I don't know he goes, nah, the difference is about 45 pounds. And he like hits the accelerator and pulls out. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't a sweet, tender moment I was expecting. But it's true. That's the way society is. And actually, before I, was, uh, before I was engaged, I talked to a few people. And I said, I'm getting engaged. What do you think? Or I'd go to advice. And multiple people, I think it was two, but it was more than one for sure said this. Have you seen her without makeup on? I'm like, really? I want to commit to something forever for the rest of my life, and that's your big advice? Before I do it, make sure without makeup on? Is it going to be that big a difference? I imagine the honeymoon... We're on the beach and we take a walk on the beach, candlelit dinner, moon, stars, beautiful night, romantic, all that. Wake up in the morning and the sun's rising, birds are chirping, breezes. And I I look over and I say, honey, and she turns, it's gone from like gizmo to gremlin. There's a monster in my bed. And I run and I dive over the balcony headlong to my death. Like, is it going to be that bad? And I know it's not going to be, but that's the way our society is, right? We're makeup. Put a bunch of makeup on. Plastic surgery, man, you don't like your body, change your body. You can change it. I'm standing up here, I'm shaped like an insect, but with enough creatine, HGH, steroids, anti-callus fitness classes, I could be like Arnold next year. I could get big, I could get strong. I can change my body, and you can too. Anyone can. But here's the scary part, that has dripped down into our churches. And that's exactly what we do with theology. Let's level with each other right now. Do you like God? I know the Sunday school answer is, yes, of course, I love God. And, and loving and liking is different. But I can be honest with a microphone that works here in front of me. And, and, and a Bible open in front of me. I read the whole Old Testament last year, and there were parts of that where I'd read it and I'd say, what? There are parts that you read and you're like, well, how do I explain that? There are parts that don't jive with who I am, so I don't think that that should be how God is. And, and you probably have those things, too. What we need to do is just make a list, right? As a church, just make a list of those things we don't like. We'll change them. We'll cover those things up. I don't want to bring a friend to church and then the pastor's up there talking about the earth eating people or Sodom and Gomorrah, like God that mad about sin that he's killing people. I don't like God's wrath so much, but with just the right amount of makeup, we can turn the frown on God's face over sin into a smiley face and we can be the love church, and we can chant love, 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 and we can give out little flyers, and everyone's going to come to that church. We're going to have a full parking lot. We're going to make you feel good. You're going to leave. I mean, we might give you food. We might give you, you know, a Valentine's candy. All about love, right? Because we don't like God's wrath. There are other churches doing just the opposite. We don't like God's love, and so they're all about wrath, wrath, wrath. Like, You go outside and they're burning, you don't even know, they're burning like atlases. And you're like, why are you burning that? Well, we ran out of Korans and Harry Potter, so we're burning the atlases. Like, they're all about hate, hate, hate. And it's it's like we can make God whatever we want him. What about when you witness to someone? What's the first thing they say to you? Are you saying, I'm going to hell? And you have to stand there and say, well, if I say yes, I look like a bigot. If I say yes, I look hateful. If I say yes, I look rude, condescending. Wouldn't it be great if we could just say, no, hell's not literal. It's figurative. They're just talking about a trash dump in Jerusalem. It's not real, and you can leave anytime you want. It's like second heaven. It's, it's not that bad. It's shameful, but that's what we do. We don't like God. Let's just change him. And what we have is the bales, right, these false gods. We create these false gods, and in the name of church, in the name of Jesus, in the name of impact, we meet and we do this. It's disgusting. It's like a Mr. Potato Head Bale. You don't like the googly eyes? Put the serious eyes on them. Yeah, two ears? I don't like two ears. I'm more of a one-eared guy. Van go one ear off, take it off. There, There, I got the version of my God I like. I got the one that will pack a house. I got the one that will have best sellers. I got the one that will make money. I got the one that will make you feel good. And that's the legacy of the church in America today. It's all about packing the seats. It's all about making people feel good. It's all about getting rich. And so it's really easy for us to look and say, well, that's not us, is it? You know, we're going through a church series. We're evaluating our local church. Where do we fit? It's really easy to point a finger and say, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong. Where do we fit? Go to Revelation 2, the last book of the Bible. If you're using one of these Bibles from the church, it's 190 is the page number. Real popular section of Revelation. Revelation's a, a a tough book to get through. It's hard to understand, but it says, Blessed is he who reads these words. Blessed is he who takes them to heart. It's an important book to read. And there's one section in the book in chapter 2 that is like a grade report for churches. There are seven churches. There's a figurative element to these churches, but there's also a very real element to these churches that is, that is real, that is, that is tangible, and that we can take to heart here. All right, this literal element of these churches. We're going to look at the first church. Let's see how we stack up with this church. All right, so here's the letter, chapter 2, verse 2. It says, I know your deeds. And already we have to stop. How do we evaluate a local church? By its deeds. And so many churches, this is the first thing they threw out when they're changing their theology, is that works is a cuss word. Works is a bad word because you're not saved through works, which is absolutely true. Right? You're saved by faith alone. Okay, it's by grace. That's how you're saved. But then they cut it all out. Once you're saved, the love of Christ should compel you to do good works. So you know a tree by what? Its fruit. Faith without works is dead. The Bible's clear on that. So when we're evaluating our local church, we have to evaluate our deeds and seeing what we're doing. I know your deeds and your toil or hard work. Are we hardworking? I can see a guy near the front row here who spends more time in the ceilings of this church than he does in the pew of this church because he's doing duct work and electrical work. There's a deacon here that, that comes, he works a full time job that's a tough job, and he's here two or three days a week just doing work, walking the corridors, looking for leaks. Are we hardworking? Yeah, I'd say we're hardworking. He so says, You know your hard work and your perseverance. Are, do we persevere? There's a video in the library that Dan shot this week talking about the history of the church. started with 12 families. Within the first few months, six of them left. A few months after that, three of them got transferred out of the area. Three families. Talk about persevering. That's persevering. This came from three families. And Beyond that, we've had people leave because of music. We've had people leave because they don't like the preaching. We might have people leave because they don't like the guy filling in for Dan today. We'll have people leave all the time. And guess what? Every Sunday, we open the doors again. Perseverance, I give us a check mark. Yeah, we're doing great so far. And that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. So it's saying you know what false is. To know what false is, what do you have to know? Truth. How do we do with that? we got AM Bible studies that went on today, and then we have teaching that comes straight from God's Word every week. Tonight, there'll be a college group that'll go from God's Word. There'll be a high school group, a small group going on, Um, other small groups. Monday night, Bible study fellowship goes on in this building. Tuesday night, ladies, Bible studies, morning and night. Friday, we got mops, Wednesdays, Bible studies. Do we know the truth? Yeah, I think so. I mean we can always grow in it, but do we know the truth? Yeah, we can give ourselves another pat on the back here. We're doing great so far. We know the truth. And then verse three, and you have perseverance. Again, we have perseverance. And have endured for my namesake. Have we endured? I mean, we got broken into once, lost thousands of dollars of stuff. We borrowed mics, had church on Sunday. We've had hardships, and we have not grown weary. Is there weariness in here? Sometimes I think yes. Okay, we all need to pull the load more. Maybe there's some weariness. But overall, we did well on that test. And then it comes to verse 4. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand of its place. I will take you from being a church. I will take you from being the local agent of change in my name, the gathering of believers. I will take that. It is a privilege, and I will take it. Are we true to our first love? That's the question today. That's the legacy. Do we have any new believers in here? Two years. You've been saved under two years. Go ahead and slip your hand up. Okay, I got some hands up. That's great. You can put your hands up. People are thinking, oh, you're going to embarrass them. If you can't raise your hand for Christ in church, we're in trouble anyway. But of those new believers, first of all, the ones who put their hands up, wouldn't it be great if it's double that amount, triple that amount? It would be great. But the other thing, if you ask any of those people who slipped their hands up, what was it like? What was it like recently when you, when you got converted? What was it, What do they do? As soon as they realize, okay, I'm saved. Okay, this is what God did for me. They say, hey, that was close. I I, I was headed to hell, wasn't I? Yeah. What do they do? I got to tell my family. I got to tell my friend, my roommate. You should meet my roommate. We got to tell. We got to get this, these verses to my roommate. It's the picture of the first love. You fall in love with a girl. You fall in love with a guy. What do you envision in your head? You envision bringing them home to meet the family. Right? You think of the day when you can bring them home and meet everyone. And that's what it is with a new believer. What your first love is, you love Jesus, and you want everyone that you've ever known to love that same Jesus to get to meet this guy who's changed your life. As a church and our legacy, what were we at the beginning? It says, look back to your beginning. What were you? What was our first love? Well, this church, for those of you who don't know, was planted by a guy named Hal. And Hal was an evangelist. That was at his heart. He ministered to physical needs, and he ministered to emotional needs, but the end game for Hal, and people who know Hal would say this, was always the soul. He wanted people coming to Christ. That's what he was all about. And so much so that it became a verb around here, and people have said it. I was 33, I was walking down the wrong road, and then I got howled. You hear that? I got howled. All right? It's become a verb. And the first thing I'll say to that is we need more verbs. We need people to say, then I got jaked. Then I got rossed. Then I got sued, in a good way. All right, We should have a whole room full of verbs going on. Second, we then need to realize the truth of those verbs, the essence of those verbs. Because here's what I'll say about Hal: I could stand up here and say a lot of good stuff, but here's what I'll say about Hal: He was a sinner. And Hal had a wicked heart. And the only reason I say that is because he told me so. Every vacation Bible school, this man would stand up in a white suit with these funny loafers. And he'd give this long talk about Jesus and how we could come to know Jesus. And he'd stand there in his suit and he'd sing hymns and he'd cry. And at some point in that message, he'd stand there with his arms wide open. I can still see him doing it and say, I am wicked. I am a sinner. But I am covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Every time. He'd say, when I get up, I put on Christ Jesus. I put on him. You see, none of us have really been howled. None of us will ever be jaked. None of us have ever been rost. You've been Jesused. That's what it's about. What did Paul say? He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's the Pauline legacy. You think Paul's up in heaven and he looks down and someone's like, I love Paul. He's my favorite apostle. Read this. Well, look what Paul wrote. Paul, Paul, Paul. You think he's like, Ha, look at me. Getting a big head. I imagine he's shaking his head a little bit, like almost embarrassed. But I bet every time someone reads one of Paul's books and says, Man, this Jesus guy's something, I bet Paul gets a little grin. I bet Paul looks at Gabriel and says, You hear that? They're praising Jesus' name. That's his legacy. So, are we true to that first love legacy of Christ? Our mission statements on our bulletin, what is it? Know him and make him known. The knowing him, which we established we're so good at, is the fuel for the legacy that is making him known. Doctrine is not for church basements. Okay, Paul was the great explainer of doctrine, he's the originator of like the creeds. All the creeds come from stuff that Paul wrote. That was what he was all about. And what was he in the Bible? Like the most active guy ever. Running around, getting beaten, shipwrecked. Even before he was saved, he was going door to door. Are you a Christian? Oh, you're in trouble. He would start throwing rocks at him. And then after he got saved, he started going door to door. Are you a Christian? Okay, I got to tell you all about this. Jesus. He was doctrinal. Doctrine is to be lived. There's a big, stark statement, teaching versus non-teaching. Okay? If we go out in the world and we do good deeds, whatever, and we don't teach and we don't proclaim the truth that we know, that we've established that we know, we are saying something about that truth that it doesn't matter or it's not that real to us. It's like a lake. If we have a lake out here and we decide to drain the lake, people don't refer to that and say, oh, look, there's the non-lake, there's the not-lake. They call it a pit or a canyon or a hole. Absence creates the presence of something else. So if there's absence in your proclamation, it's proclaiming something else that this just doesn't matter. That kills legacy. An example of this, and then I'll be done. we got a great example in, uh, in Genesis. There's a guy named Abraham. We all know him. We all know the song. Um, he was uh, the guy God made a covenant with and said, hey, you're the guy that I'm going to bless all the people on the earth through. It's going to be your line. Your descendants are going to be like the stars. You're going to have so many kids and grandkids, et cetera. Towards the end of Abraham's life, he had one son who this line was going to go through. He had just had him. He was over 100 years old. He was getting ready to die. He knew it. Everyone knew it. And a couple chapters later, his wife dies, and a few chapters beyond that, Abraham dies. This is chapter 21 in Genesis. And Abraham's real pleased with God. He's got his son. Some things are going well with his life, and he wants to honor God, and he wants to honor the promise God gave him. And what does he do? He bends down and he plants a tree. And the tree is called a tamarisk tree. Real cool tree, grows in the desert. Takes a long time to grow up, but it's tall. Big, tall tree, long branches, and it has needles instead of leaves. And this is the cool part about the tree the needles are full of salt. And so a thing happens when it's nighttime, the salt draws the water to itself. And so in the morning, the needles drip with water. There's water on all these needles. No matter what the weather's like, there's always water in the needles of the tamarisk tree. And then during the daytime, all the water in the desert heat gets evaporated up. And so this cool thing happens. While it's getting evaporated, it creates this vacuum, this convection current, where it's like natural air conditioning. This is before window units. Okay? So there's air conditioning under this tree, per se. So the coolest place in the, in the early world is inside a cave or underneath a tamarisk tree. And this is what Abraham plants right before he, he's dying. Is he ever going to see that tree grow up? He's dying. What this says is that he knew God was faithful. That, hey, my grandkid might might need this tree. I only have one son, but I'm going to have as many grandkids as we can. I mean, more than we can count soon. They might come under this tree and need it. This tree is for those who follow. Think about that person. It's dry and it's hot. Hundreds of years after Abraham. Dry, hot, lonely traveler with a mule. They look off in the distance, it's like an oasis, and then they realize, no, that's a real tree. And they hurry to get to it, they're gasping, they're tired, their mule's gasping, it's tired. They get under it, and it's cool, and it's restful. And they get the water from the needles, and they, they moisten their mouths, and it's just so refreshing. And then the mule lays down to take a nap, and then the guy decides, you know, I'm going to take a little rest, I'm so hot, I'm so tired, I'm so burned. And he looks up, and the shade, the, the, the breeze, is, is moving those needles around. And you think at any point he looks up and says, Thank Abraham. Now, I'm pretty sure the guy looks up and says, Thank God. Because when Abraham planted the tree, he didn't etch his name into it. He didn't put like a little monument to himself. You know, when he planted that tree, he thought, This is going to bless the people behind me. How are we prepping the way for not yet believers to come into the respite, the rest of Jesus Christ? How are we seeking a kingdom legacy which gives refreshment, rest, rest, Renewal to the weary journeymen of this world. The legacy depends on reaching the future today. It's funny because uh, God still has work to do in Cape. And he has people pegged to be saved. You know, everyone who God's going to save on this earth, guess what they are? Lost. Everyone left who's going to be saved is lost. We don't need to go save the people who are already saved. Everyone... Is lost. Who we need to reach, but yet we handpick them and think we can. No, he has pegged pagans to be priests, right here in our community, and all we have to do is go out and get them. That's the harvest he's talking about in the New Testament. So my question today is: How are we developing a legacy in Cape? Are people getting chapelled? Well, if people say Cape Bible Church, that's where I go to church. What do they think? Oh, those are the people who never shut up about Jesus. Is that what they say about us? doubt it that's what we want to be that's the legacy i i I give that example about abraham because it's individual he plants a tree by himself right because the church is a collection of believers it's a collective effort but it's done on the individual level it's the exact same as tug of war right if we're pulling a rope and i'm pulling it by myself and i get some buddies to help me pull does that mean i can slack off I pull as hard as I can, the guy next to me pulls as hard as he can, the the girl next to him pulls as hard as she can, and together we're all pulling the same rope, the same direction, and all of us as hard as we can. The church of today is what we titled this, because the church of today dies tomorrow. Cape Bible Chapel needs to be a church for tomorrow, today. We look to our past, we learn from our past, but we are a church for tomorrow. It's not through what I can do, it's through what God can do through me, and that's true legacy. And so as we think about what our church is and how we're moving, and as we continue this church series with Dan next week, are you a legacy for God? Better question, is God a legacy through you? We're going to get a picture of legacy right now before the praise team comes. We're going to have a baptism, and it's a young person who's saying, I am identified with Christ, and you can't get more legacy than that. And so we'll watch this and then we'll, we'll close with worship.